0: Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerin, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 15 November, 2022. This is lecture number 78 in the series I've been conducting called Membrane Biochemistry. Uh, No, we're not quite out of those woods. Uh, I want to continue in my discussion of contextual expression of transcription factors that are associated with the endomembranous system network of signal transduction uh, to give you that framework of the um, way in which one needs to understand biochemical processes. Remember, I was talking about the kinds of judgments one makes when discussing logical arguments. And we talked about quantity, quality, relational, and modal interactions to generate those kinds of arguments that can produce hypothetical deductions to have research conducted wherein uh, the appropriate results are generated data is analyzed evidence is produced and new ideas spring forth from that research and i told you that many of the uh, things we've been, we talk about in general in science, and then more specifically in biochemistry, because this is my field, actually are contextual in nature, and they're not substance ontological, they are event ontological, which means things change over time. So I'm trying to give you this idea the endomembranous system is a trafficking network that is dynamic and kinetic all the time in the cell so when we describe a specific event such as the control over transcription from say a steroid neurohormone that you have to keep in mind that that hormone may require binding proteins to translocate to the receptors receptor with ligand may require other binding proteins to traffic into the cytoplasm from the plasma membrane and then in the cytoplasm there's a whole host of events which can sometimes involve phosphorylation cascades, like what I'm going to describe here in a moment, that also require adapter proteins. Since adapter proteins, depending upon where they're functioning and when they're functioning, uh, will sometimes have contrarian or even contradictory effects. So it's not good enough to understand what... Um, the given players are in a biochemical system, you need to know what context you're talking about. Living systems, therefore, are events, and the dynamic system in which we normally describe them at has to be taken into consideration. And so, a really good understanding of the published research in a given area usually is not adequate to fully understand the scope of how different systems interact. Uh, in different cell types. And obviously changes that may occur because of pathophysiological, pathobiochemical events. So that was just a reintroduction of what I'm doing lately here in authentic biochemistry lectures. I just wanna make sure you understood the epistemological context in which I'm trying to deliver this lecture today. So we talked about insulin-like growth factor last time. Now I going to talk about sphingolipids. Now, recall shrinkable metabolism. One pathway is starting with amino acid L-serine and then the product of fatty acid synthesis or possibly the incorporation of fatty acid coming from lipoproteins into the cell or via CD36 receptor. Palmitate then esterifies the thioester to coenzyme making palmitoyl-CoA will condense in the... Uh, uh, Sphinganine phosphate synthase pathway. And what you'll generate here is 3-keto sphinganine. that uh, intermediate will then be processed by the enzyme 3-keto sphinganine reductase to make sphinganine, and then ceramide synthase to make dihydroceramide, which then gets desaturated we're putting that double bond, that trans-double bond into that previously formed palmitic acid will then generate ceramide. That's one way to make ceramide. Another way is directly from sphingomyelin via sphingomyelinase, uh, which will also generate phosphorylcholine, which can then move into metabolism. And remember, ceramide can also um, be used to synthesize sphingomyelin went through those pathways recently. Now I'm gonna tell you some more details. Ceramide can be metabolized by a galactosylceramide synthase to make galactosylceramide, which can be further processed to make sulfatides. Ceramide can also be used in the glucosylceramide synthase to make glucosylceramides, which then, after the enzyme lactosylceramides of so this, make lactosylceramide, and then gangliosides. Gangliosides can be degraded to lactosylceramides and via beta-galactosidase activity, reform glucosylceramides, and then a glucocerebrosidase will also resynthesize synthesize ceramide. That's correct. I'm sure you're following along here. Now, ceramide also can be phosphoryla- phosphorylated via kinase to make ceramide 1-phosphate, and it can be dephosphorylated back to ceramide. And then finally, ceramide can react with the enzyme ceraminidase to make sphingosine and sphingosine can be phosphorylated by sphingosine kinase to make sphingosine 1 phosphate and then finally degraded this would be a terminal degradation lyase, which we talked about i know before and that would then generate phosphonoethanolamine and hexadecinal right the aldehyde of course sphingosine 1 phosphate can be the phosphate can be hydrolyzed off to make sphingosine and sphingosine back to make ceramide via ceramide synthase. That's the adding back fatty acid, and that amide linkage. Now, I just want you to understand that all of this metabolism, including sphingomyelin metabolism, can occur in the mammalian nucleus. Now, we talked about this last time for Glycerolipids, now I'm telling you the same thing is going on with sphingolipids. So you think about the nucleus normally involved in nucleic acid metabolism, right? DNA replication, recombination, repair, transcription of DNA to RNA, RNA processing, um, splicing, events, capping, and then translocation of that, for example, messenger RNA, tRNAs or ribosomal RNAs out of the nucleus for trafficking into the cytosol. Uh, and into subcellular organelles, usually have endomembranous components having to be traversed, um, ultimately then producing um, the translational machinery to make polypeptide. So here I'm telling you the sphingomyelin can be broken down, and the sphingomyelinase, of course, can generate ceramide in the nucleus, and the ceraminidase will generate free fatty acid sphingosine and sphingosine 1-phosphate. So part of those reactions I was just telling you about also occur in the nucleus. The other reaction which occurs in the nucleus, all those reactions I told you there were involved in what's going on in the cytoplasm and in the endomembranous system, the ones previous. Now I'm telling you nuclear only. You can also run a kinase to make ceramide one phosphate in the nucleus, mammalian nucleus. And of course you can synthesize sphingomyelin By utilizing phosphatidylcholine, thus generating diacylglycerol, and at the same time, uh, generating sphingomyelin, right? So, all those components of the sphingomyelin, sphingolipid, basal metabolic flux occur in the mammalian nucleus, okay? Now, I think it's enough to get started with the transcription factors that we're going to um, bring into um, the... Uh, mainframe of this lecture. Now, remember transcription factors like CRE uh, or CRE. CRE is the cyclic AMP response elements. And you need to cyclase to make cyclic AMP from ATP, right? So you have a cyclic AMP response uh, element binding protein, and that's CREB. And CREB is involved in, in remarkable amount of regulatory components in the nucleus of the mammal. We talk about the neuronal compartment, neuronal cells, you get multiple Krebs transcriptionally activated genes in neurons and in glial cells. And this can occur via extracellular stimuli For example, CREB mediates the neuronal excitability and also synaptic elasticity and plasticity that's associated with long-term memory. The synaptic transmission itself will activate a calcium and a cyclic AMP signaling cascade. That leads to the phosphorylation of the CREB at a specific serine, 133. And that's actually required for transcription of many of the genes. So the transcription factor requires that phosphorylation. So CREB phosphorylation mediates binding of CREB to another enzyme called the histone acetyltransferase. So now we're talking about epigenetic programming. And the HAT enzymes, these acetyltransferase, will interact with the CREB and also with the creb binding protein known as cbp and another protein called p300 all of those components i just mentioned to you the acetyltransferase the creb creb binding to the uh, response element and then the creb binding protein and p300 will all induce the heightened amount of transcriptional activity you need in the neuron in the mammalian central nervous system. Now, there's one thing mentioned here. Krebs phosphorylation is required, but it's not sufficient to promote gene transcription. So what that means is that multiple cofactors are necessary. And I just mentioned a few of those to you. So you also have creb regulated transcription coactivators that's right these are called crtcs and they will regulate also multiple levels of transcription which leads to changes in metabolism and cell fate in the central nervous system they seem to be associated with long term memory and perhaps with the aging process And when disrupted, the CRTCs have been known to be associated with age-related neurodegeneration. That's correct, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease to name two prominent ones. So the CRTC family of proteins, yes, that's right, there are at least three of them in humans. And they're expressed just about everywhere, although, the CRTC1 is the main isoform in the mammalian neuron. So let's go through this quickly. Again, this is all about dynamics. Remember, we're not gonna be sitting here describing transcription factors talking about the dynamic process. So during the resting stage, CRTC1 becomes phosphorylated by a kinase called SIK12, or that stands for salt-induced kinase. That will promote the interaction of the CRTC1 with another protein called the 14-3-3, and it will will then result in sequestration in the cytoplasm. So it stops that coactivator from making it to the nucleus, okay, by that phosphorylation. However, now, let's continue on. CRTCs become activated, of course, by the opposite event, which in this case would be dephosphorylation, which will lead directly to translocation into the nucleus. And that will be in response both to the cyclic AMP signaling and also to calcium mobilization, which will then involve the phosphatidyl phosphate cascade, both directly and indirectly. We covered that about three lectures ago, just that PIP pathway, not this whole interaction with these transcription factors. Now don't worry, we're gonna not we're we are going to include now the schmingolipids. We're just getting there, okay? So synaptic activation increases cyclic AMP levels, as we've been saying. That will activate the, the protein kinase A, which will phosphorylate and thereby inhibit the salt-inducing kinase 1-2. Which then prevents CRTC1 phosphorylation and therefore will allow for its utilization as a coactivator in the nucleus. Same time, calcium influx through a uh, there's all different kinds of voltage-gated calcium channels. This will be the L-type voltage-gated channel, will then activate the calcium-dependent phosphatase. That enzyme known, is known as. PP2B, and also known as calcineurin. It has a phosphatase activity, that's correct. And that will dephosphorylate any CRTC1 that had become phosphorylated because of the salt of these kinase. That will induce, of course, overall translocation of that CRTC1 to the nucleus. In the nucleus, the CRTC1 binds to a B-Zip domain of the um, cyclic AMP response element binding protein site that will enhance the interaction of the CREB with the TATA box region, and so that will be the TATA box binding protein associated factor being brought in, and that's known as TAF Roman numeral two, and you'll get a subunit of the transcription factor TF two D nine also recruited. Now, in the neurons, this CRTC1 dephosphorylation and nuclear translocation mediates the very specific activation of the Krebs target genes. And this is linked to synaptic activity. Okay. So, normally what you think about neural transmission? now you're learning a whole lot more, hopefully. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about the Krebs binding protein. The Krebs binding protein along with this being uh, associated with the CRTCs and with CREB itself, will also independently, this is the human gene product now, acetylate histone residues, which will outright then enhance transcriptional activation. Right? The acetylation of lysine residues and histones will open up heterochromatin and euchromatin. The the same CBP will also acetylate non-histone proteins, any number of proteins that we've talked about, such as transcription factor, just to name one, foxo one very critical in the immune cells, right? Now, this CBP, this CREB binding protein, specifically binds to phosphorylated CREB and CREB, phosphorylated means it's active. Remember, the CRTC1 and d is activated. Keep that in mind as well. But um, the CBP binds to phosphorylated CREB and then overall enhances transcriptional activi- uh, activation of everything that's turned turned on downstream from that initial event of the adenylacyclase synthesis of cyclic AMP, okay? Going through that whole pathway. So basically, a CBP acts as a co-activator. Now, some of the physiology it's involved in the brain is it acts as a circadian transcriptional co-activator, which enhances the activity of many of the circadian clock genes that we've talked about, such as CLOCK, ARNTL, BMAL1, that heterodimer, but also the Npas and the ARNTL. Bmal one uh, tripartite cofactor response. Those are all circadian clock genes. We talked about those, uh, uh, I think, before this summer. Now, finally, let me get to this paper in Frontiers in Pharmacology. Okay, with human cardiac fibroblast, sphingosine one phosphate regulates the proliferation of cells, production of collagen correct, and a cell migration via the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor isoform 3, which couples the GQ protein to activate phospholipase C-beta, which hydrolyzes a phosphatidylinositol producing as IP3 and DAG ultimately leading to calcium increase. And of course, DAG activates protein kinase C, right? So remember that you get that pKa holoenzyme, right? And um, it will then induce Krebs. Krebs will be phosphorylated because because of the phosphorylation of CREB, then it's going to interact with CRTC one dephosphorylated, and the CBP protein. All of those proteins together will bind to the cyclic AMP response element, uh, which is a proximal portion of the promoter region of the genes, which then will be activated. Don't worry; I'm going to tell you what those genes are in a minute. Now, in general, beyond PKA, cyclic AMP. Binds and activates many effectors. So it modulates channel opening and cation currents because it binds to the CNG ion channels. And remember that the activation of the G inhibitory protein coupled, sphingosine 1 phosphate receptor 1,3, has an inhibitory effect on that initial adenylate cyclase activity. And remember the dealing cyclase that generates cyclic AMP normally will activate Krebs So, right now you understand how when stringostine 1 phosphate binds to its receptor, and all this is going down to regulate transcription factors in the mammalian nucleus, in the human nucleus, that you got that initial phase of binding to its receptor by stringostine 1 phosphate would block all these Krebs induced genes. Okay? Now check my time real quick because i'm not i'm not anywhere yeah i got plenty of time not anywhere near finished with this descriptor here very important to keep your mind on the prize here which is talking about the effects of endomembranous lipids regulating gene expression therefore this is a component of yeah membrane biochemistry now you know that intracellular kinases, including the PKCs and the MAP kinases, are involved in a whole host of intermediary signal transduction cascades. But I want you to understand there's a great deal of um, diversification of these kinases. So for example, the MAP kinases have three entire subfamilies. There's P38 MAP kinase, there's P4244 MAP kinase, and there's a C-jun N-terminal kinase, and those are PKC isoforms, those latter ones, that last one is, and they also are shown to have major mediators that activate and and co-activate, MAP kinases are co-activated by the c-jun-n-terminal kinases, right? So activation of the MAP kinase and all the transcription factors downstream are necessary for the upregulation of COX-2. Now, COX-2, of course, is a cyclooxygenase. And the upregulation of that gene expression, and then enzyme activity is accompanied by an increase in the icosinoid prostaglandin E2, which participates in inflammatory responses. These are are some of the initial effectors of inflammation. The COX2-associated inflammatory response, which of course is inhibited by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So sphingosine 1-phosphate will activate the NF-kappa B in many different cell types, including in the heart, including in the central nervous system. And it also regulates the expression of inflammatory genes, and it does so via G-protein coupled receptor agonization. Now, that would include sphingosine 1-phosphate, bradykinin, and thrombin. All of those will stimulate MAP kinases and therefore NF-kappa B activation, which will then ultimately lead to, yeah, cyclooxygenase 2 transcription and then translation and then activation finally to make prostaglandin E2. So COX-2 expression is regulated by then, as I just described, a nested hierarchical sequential series of protein kinases c map kinases and ultimately transcription factors including of course the NF of kappa b which is the the most frequently described pro-inflammatory transcription factor specifically also in non-inflammatory and in non-immune cell lineages you see this transcription factor primary, although it also is found in the immune cells now Sphingosine 1-phosphate-induced cyclooxygenase 2 expression is mediated through transcription and translation. So 1-phosphate is in both of those events. And it does so, does so via coupling to both a G-inhibitory and a GQ protein. So you've got sphingosine 1-phosphate binding to its sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor 1-3, that activates a protein kinase C-alpha-dependent, P42, P44 MAP kinase, the P38 canonical MAP kinase, and the Jun kinase, Junk 1, 2. That all then causes the participation and activation of the NF-kappa-B signaling pathway. That then ultimately leads to prostaglandin E2. Okay. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about this. Cyclic AMP, of course, will also activate uh, a, another series of events. And in the adrenocortical cell, after cyclic AMP is generated via adenylate cyclase, and the uh, phosphodiesterase is blocked, this naturally occurs, the PKA will be activated. And you'll get, that's pretty kind say and it will phosphorylate CREB, CREB will then induce transcription, and some of the polypeptides involved will include those that synthesize cortisol from cholesterol. So the CYP11A, CYP17, the three beta HSD, the CYP. A2, and the CYP11B1, that last enzyme, converts 11-deoxycortisol to cortisol, and then cortisol is secreted from the adrenocortical cell. So you see now that cyclic AMP, which is controlled by shrinkolipids binding to the receptors in the nucleus, control the steroidogenesis, the anti-inflammatory pathway, because you're generating now cortisol. So at the same time, earlier in the pathway, the transcription of pro-inflammatory processes, starting with the COX-2 expression, making prostaglandin E2, then turning on a whole host of NF-kappa B, such as uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine production. The same time that's occurring, the genes responsible for the polypeptides, the enzymes, that will convert cholesterol to cortisol which is anti-inflammatory are also triggered so that means that that same crab system i told you about which has a lot of pro-inflammatory um, characteristics to it also has the anti-inflammatory characteristic because it generates the steroids involved in uh inhibiting inflammation that is the corticosteroid pathway okay so This is all part of what I was talking, what I keep on trying to describe you to understand at the epistemological level. So how you understand your knowledge base, right? So that means what are the events involved? What are the references you can use as predicates to generate truth statements about those events? That would mean evidence, for example, right? And then how does that evidence play a role in generating uh, hypothesis after deduction, which can lead then to the, the generation of new experiments to further understand these pathways. So you have to go all the way back to the beginning of that reasoning phenomenon and you have to include in that reasoning phenomenon what appear to be contrarian or even contradictory events. And what were they just now I described to you? Just describe, and this just comes from a few papers, by the way, but the papers were important. I selected them to show you this event ontology. What it means is you can have pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory response from a sphingolipid mediated pathway in the nucleus, all linked to Cyclic AMP response element metabolism in association with fingocene 1 phosphate receptor mediated co localization and control of transcription factors, leading to an anti inflammatory uh, pathway in the adrenocortical cell lineage, but at the same time, in, say, a heart muscle or in neurons uh, or in a skeletal muscle or in the adipose tissue, could be involved in pro-inflammatory responses from distinct signaling through those organ systems. All right, so I'm going to stop here. I think that that was good to bring this back. It's already a Tuesday, and uh, I will continue with several lectures this week, and I'm going to uh, hopefully finish memory biochemistry, uh, if not this week, next week, certainly well before Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening, and thank you for coming back, This is Dr. Dan Guerra, authentic biochemistry podcast studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest on a cold, sunny day uh, on the 15th of November, 2022, saying bye for now.